Hello, and welcome back to another episode of BioWorks. My name is Aaron, and today I'm joined by Dr. Zach Abbott, who is the founder and CEO of ZBiotics. Zach, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me here. Really excited to chat with you. Yeah, first off, I guess, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to your current work? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my background, um, I am uh, originally from Northern California. I uh, grew up in Sacramento and uh, did my undergrad at UC Berkeley. Um, and I was a uh, molecular uh, cell biology major there, focusing on immunology. Um, I also studied classical history uh, just for fun because uh, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do in college. And I certainly didn't know that I was going to start a company someday. I wasn't even sure that I was going to pursue science. But then um, after college, I tried out a lot of different, um, uh, you know, jobs and, and just explored a lot of different career paths and kind of was all over the map. I uh, worked in a bar, worked in construction, um, and then, uh, you know, found my way back to science. I knew it was, you know, it's still an itch that was there for me. And so I uh, got a job at a chemistry lab doing uh, sort of analytical chemistry on uh, soil and water samples. And then, uh, but my true passion was really biology. And, and so uh, I had a buddy who was working at a lab at UC Davis um, doing uh, HIV research. And he was moving on uh, to go to med school. And he like, you know, reached out and was like, hey man, do you, would you be interested in kind of taking my spot? And so I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And uh, I'd always been really fascinated uh, um, and, uh, you know, passionate about uh, HIV research. And so it was really like kind of a, just one of those just serendipitous opportunities. And so I, I jumped into that, uh, had a really great experience working there for about a year and a half and knew um, through that experience that I wanted to go back and get my PhD um, in microbiology, but I still didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I just knew that like whatever it was going to be, a PhD was going to help me with that. So I went and got a PhD in um, microbiology and immunology at the University of Michigan. Um, and that was an incredible experience as well. I learned so much, uh, really enjoyed it. Um, but I knew right away that academia was not going to be the place for me as a final resting place, that it was, you know, the PhD was great, but that I was ready to move on. And I really was, was most passionate about applying my science um, to kind of uh, problems that that people really deal with. Like I really love for the idea of, of my science, for, for people to be able to engage with my science in sort of like a daily uh, or everyday sort of way. And so I knew that, that was gonna be important. So that's when biotech and in particular small biotech or possibly startup started my, uh, you know, I don't know, my radar. And so I was looking into different things. I did like an internship in grad school at a small biotech and. And I was like, you know, I think this is where I want to be. I still did not know that I wanted to start a company or anything like that, but um, I was sort of zeroing in on that. And then I uh, spent a year after grad school designing clinical trials for drug companies. And that was another really great experience where I got to uh, see what uh, a lot of different people were doing in the biotech space as it was in terms of translating to drug development. Um, and I saw there that I didn't want to do drug development, that um, it's very hard to hold on to your science that you're usually aiming to kind of scrape together enough data so that one of the big pharma companies will buy you. Um, and then you kind of lose control over the interaction that, you know, you have with, with people using your science, which is really what I wanted. So, um, you know, through some serious things that we might get into, like I, you know, uh, I ended up starting my own company called Zbiotics and, you know, we make, uh, use biotechnology to make, um, uh, products that people can use in their daily lives. It's genetically engineered probiotic bacteria um, sold as a food product directly to people 
that they can engage with and that we get to kind of have a conversation with. So I think, you know, right now I'm doing, I think what I was really destined to do and what it took me a long time, um, from undergrad till the day I started to do my life to find, which is you know, probably a, a little over 10 years. Wow. sounds like you've had a lot of different experiences. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I guess something I wanted to ask about was you mentioned how you had like a PhD in microbiology. And after that, you also spend a little time in like drug development, doing clinical trials. Um, did you feel like those experiences gave you like the science training you needed to like launch a biotech company in your current field? Definitely the, the PhD in microbiology gave me the training I, I needed to start my own company um, more than um uh, the work at the CRO designing clinical trials was actually probably more of a, of like a crash course in kind of the business of science and the regulatory aspects of science more than the science itself. Um, I mean, you know, there's definitely some experimental design stuff that goes into that, but for the most part, it was more around like, you know, what are the logistics of getting this done? How big does it have to be, you know, uh, how much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Um, those types of questions and like dealing with a lot of different vendors. And so it gave me a really cool insight into what are the other things besides the science that you have to consider when you're developing something, um, you know, and, and that's not even touching consumer at that point. That's just like the other kind of other, like the other business stuff. So yeah, that was, it was a really cool opportunity um, to kind of uh, add another tool to the toolbox. Gotcha. Gotcha. Did you, um, was there anything that you felt like you weren't prepared for from your like PhD and <laughs> yeah, like were you learning techniques on the fly and stuff? <laughs> uh, everything. Like, I mean, dude, there's nothing that can prepare you for starting a company. I think like truly except for starting one. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, the science itself was honestly, for me, the science was like ended up and this is something I did not appreciate. The science ended up being the easy part. Um, relatively speaking, it was a part I was trained for. And so when I, you know, sat down, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to execute and not to say that there weren't, you know, lots of, you know, misstarts and troubleshooting and errors and things that I had to work through. Um, but it took me about a year from the day I started it with just an idea to develop, uh, our first prototype, which became our first product. Um, and, uh, you know, that was all bench work and that was very much in my comfort zone. That felt a lot like doing my PhD and working on a thesis project and things like that. Um, and what I didn't appreciate was like, I really in my mind thought that like at that day when I had the prototype, it was like, you know, hands, you know, clean, we figured it out, it's all done, you know, sells itself, make a billion dollars. And it turned out <laughs> that like, that was really just like the day truly the company started. Uh, and like, uh, there was a, there were so many other challenging things I was never prepared for around like patent work and regulatory, manufacturing, branding, like consumer voice, like all these things that were just like, uh, I mean, you know, and every company has their own stuff. And so, but I think that's one of the fun things about being an entrepreneur is that you get the opportunity to learn all that stuff. Like how is somebody who's trained as a scientist ever get to do that normally? Like if I joined, you know, some big biotech company, they never would have let me do, do marketing and branding, but that was really fun to learn how to do not. And I'm still learning, of course, but like, uh, yeah. So I think that was, you know, one of the things that was, that, that's been really fun in starting a company. Gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess I wanted to touch a little bit about the science behind Zbiotics. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners out there, can you give like a quick summary of your company's product and how it works as well as sort of like your bench to market process? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Uh, fundamentally, so what, what we made was we took I took a probiotic bacteria that you likely already eat every day of your life. It's called B. subtilis. Um, it's really common in, in uh, the environment. It's a soil microbe, and um, so it's like naturally on kind of like all the fruits and vegetables you eat. It's also intentionally used in fermentation of like um, soybeans for uh, this uh, uh, Asian uh, fermented soybean food called natto, which some people might be familiar with. Um, and then um, it's also used frequently as one of the uh, live microbes in kombucha and things like that. So it's just really common and known to be very safe microbe probiotic bacteria. Then took that bacteria that you already eat every day um, and I engineered it so that it would express um, one extra enzyme beyond what it normally does. And that enzyme is uh, breaks down acetaldehyde into acetate. Um, and so why that matters is that like when you drink alcohol, for instance, um, your body converts alcohol into this very toxic byproduct called acetaldehyde, uh, among many other things. I'm massively oversimplifying, but like um, one of the things it does is converts alcohol to acetaldehyde. And that acetaldehyde is highly toxic. It kind of wreaks havoc throughout the body. And it's kind of, it's one of the things that's responsible for some of the next day misery you might feel after a night of drinking. Um, and so your liver makes an enzyme called an acetaldehyde dehydrogenase that breaks that acetaldehyde down into acetate. And it does that very effectively. The problem is that a lot of the acetaldehyde that you actually end up getting exposed to is initially formed in your gut before your liver has access to it. And it's formed by the microbes that live in your gut as the alcohol passes through before it's absorbed. Um, and so essentially what we've done is taken that really effective and efficient function of the liver and moved it into the gut using this probiotic bacteria. So this bacteria has been basically programmed to execute this function of the liver to break this toxic acetaldehyde down into acetate. And so the idea is, and then we took that probiotic bacteria that's engineered to express acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, and then we put that into a small beverage, uh, just like a little liquid shot, about a half an ounce, and you drink that before you start drinking. And then that live bacteria um, you know, sort of slowly passes through your gut and as you drink that acetaldehyde that forms in your gut, this bacteria can break that down into acetate, um, which is innocuous, essentially vinegar. Um, and uh, and so then, you know, it's kind of dealing with that as you drink. And then the next day when you wake up, you've hopefully been exposed to less acetaldehyde and you feel better than you would have felt otherwise. And so that's kind of our first product and, you know, kind of the high level on how it works. Gotcha. <clears throat> yeah, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to touch a little bit about like, the vector for like delivery mm -hmm. so you mentioned that you you developed this um probiotic bacteria zb183 from the parent strain yeah. b subtilis mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the gene that you like kind of transformed in for the breakdown of acetaldehyde the aldh gene was taken from c necator a soil bacterium if i'm correct yeah yeah you <laughs> did your research yeah. uh c yeah um i was just wondering like how did you arrive at like subtilis and c negator as your bacterial strains like for development mm -hmm. like is there already a lot of research going on to this or were there other um were there other bacteria in consideration during your development phases totally that's a really good question so yeah i mean this was like kind of what the initial zbiotics ideation looked like was like okay i know that i want to make a probiotic bacteria that can break down and express a or an acetaldehyde dehydrogenase gene um, but like, you know, which bacteria and which gene and where do they come from? And so there's a lot of different options. And so I just started by looking at the list of 
kind of common probiotic bacteria that already that we already use kind of in the supplement industry because um, we know they have like a long history of safety and um, and all those things. And then when I, I started with that list and I looked and looked for ones that essentially my requirements were that it could be, you know, it was easy to genetically manipulate because we're going to be doing genetic engineering on it. Um, and uh, that it would have sort of, I guess what I would generally categorize as robustness, uh, meaning that like some of these probiotics you might notice like have to be refrigerated um, or uh, have to be have special encapsulation or things like that that you know basically make it more difficult for them to be practical and deliverable once they're on the market. Um, and so I really wanted something that was shelf stable at room temperature um, and that would pass through your stomach acid unharmed. Um, and so that, you know, because a lot of times you take these probiotics and they just die in your stomach acid because they're not actually meant to kind of pass through. Um, so one of the really cool things about the subtilis is that it's a spore forming bacteria. And that's how it um, is part of its natural life cycle in the environment. It goes into this dormant spore and the spore is like this like shell coat that protects it like and it makes it incredibly robust. It's incredible what these subtilis can tolerate. Like it can literally tolerate boiling water for short periods of time. Um, the low pH of your stomach is no problem. It's naturally evolved to pass through on its own. So it's kind of come with its own packaging already, which is one of the things I loved about it. And they've pulled um, Bacillus subtilis spores out of like ice flows from like, you know, uh, uh, Antarctica and stuff that ha uh, have been around for like 10,000 years. And then they're able to like reactivate them and bring them back to like wake them back up after 10,000 years of dormancy. And so they're just these incredible microbes already. And they're already a probiotic and very safe. So it was like, okay. This is a no-brainer. That's the back, and it's also really great. It's a kind of a common workhorse bacteria in the microbiology world. Um, it's uh, many people have probably heard of E. coli, and that's sort of like the one that's maybe the more famous workhorse. But Bacillus subtilis is probably a close second when it comes to bacteria that are really easy to work with in the lab. Um, and so, for all those reasons, it's just like I mean, a no-brainer, right? Like a perfectly you know, adaptable, uh, modifiable bacteria that is super robust, super safe, super friendly. I mean, you know, it's perfect. So that's why I chose that. And then as for the, how I got the ALDH gene uh, from uh, Cena Cotter was, you know, honestly, that was just searching the literature. Uh, what's cool about acetaldehyde dehydrogenases is that they're an incredibly ubiquitous um, uh, class of enzyme. Nearly 70% of all life on the planet spanning like everything, animals, bacteria, everything. Um, nearly 70% of life on this planet has some version of an ALDH gene. So there's a lot to choose from. And it's a well-studied gene. You know, humans have an ALDH gene, and I considered using the human one. But um, for practical reasons, bacteria are better expressing bacterial genes rather than like eukaryotic genes. And so um, I looked through the bacterial kingdom, and, I, and then my criteria was really just I was looking for something, uh, uh, genes that made enzymes that were characterized, had good enzyme kinetics um, and came from safe bacteria. Like, so for instance, one of the ones I found that a lot of study had been done on was in one from Vibrio cholera. And so I didn't really, even though it doesn't have anything to do with the pathogenicity of, of cholera, uh, I didn't want to like, you know, that optically that wouldn't look great. So I basically identified like four or five enzymes from different bacteria um, and uh, that had like been previously characterized in the literature and then just ordered the genes off online um, and then, um, tested all, uh, all five of them. I think I used five actually to start with, um, just, and just saw which one the bug, my bug, my bacteria liked the best. Um, and, and was able to express the most and, and, and have it be functional and, um, and 
the one from Cena Cotter worked the best. And so it was just a tar targeted approach rather than screening like, hundreds of thousands or something like that. We just, I just picked five from the literature that were looked promising. And, and one of those was, was really robust. So that's kind of how we got that one. <clears throat> gotcha. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I kind of wanted to also ask about like, specifically now that you've decided what bacteria you want to use, like how you managed to get this gene from your like foreign DNA into your wanted bacteria and i know on your website you mentioned that like you use homologous recombination which is just like mm -hmm. basically just like switching out like regions of one bacterial genome for like regions of mm -hmm. like a foreign dna so my question here was kind of like just how did you control the sequences of dna next to like homologous regions to make sure that only what you want like that one aldh yeah. gene from c right. or gets inserted yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, this is like, you know, the fundamentals of genetic engineering, right? Is like, um, so uh, I'll start by saying, just sort of think of the order of operations of this, that like getting the DNA itself, I mean, this is an amazing time that we live in. And I try to like, whenever I get the opportunity, like, um, you know, advocate or, or, or excite people about like synthetic biology at this time. Like we are on like, we're on the precipice of just, I mean, it is like what software was 20 years ago. It's, it's like, you know, amazing times. So basically I can go online right now and like type in a, a, a DNA code um, of whatever I want. Um, you know, just like literally just go online, look up a paper, find the sequence of a gene, and then just copy and paste that into an order form. And then two days later, um, somebody will, uh, you know, a company uh, will, such as like Twist Bioscience will, will basically write uh, like build that DNA code and uh, like in DNA and then mail it to me in a little vial and I'll get it like you know a couple of days later uh, for a few hundred bucks. It's truly amazing. So like I don't have to go in and get Cupravatus nicotter and uh, you know C nicotter and then like cut out that DNA like the DNA I want and make sure it's the right DNA and then like you know try and like tack on homologous ends and things like that's what that's why I do my PhD and that's what <laughs> you know we used to have to do not and not all that long ago like and like but like the cost of of reading and writing DNA has dropped so amazingly that like now it's just really like like you just write out what you want and somebody gives it to you and it's like it's truly amazing so so from that perspective that's really what I did right so I took the code uh the DNA code for that encodes uh the ALDH enzyme from um Cena Cotter and then I added to both ends about a thousand base pairs of, of homologous sequence um to the site at which I wanted to integrate that gene into um our B subtlest gene. So basically like I know I want to put it in in a like you know if we're gonna call the bacterial chromosome a book. Like I know I want to put it on like paragraph three of page like ninety seven, right? So I have the exact spot I want. Um, and so I just write the I just create homology on the end of my gene of interest to that exact spot in the book in the chromosome of DNA. Uh, uh, bacterial DNA, uh, subtlest DNA, excuse me. And then, and then what is amazing is that then, like all this like amazing biology happens that already exists that I didn't have to do anything <clears throat> to do. Like um, it's biology that the bacteria have evolved over the last three billion years uh, with homologous recombination. So basically, they naturally take up the uh, this this DNA. So I just like literally mix the DNA in a tube with the bacteria. And then the bacteria naturally, on their own, take up that DNA, recognize 
the homology and then naturally switch in the new DNA for their for the existing DNA on their chromosome. They do all that themselves, and it's a totally natural process that they've evolved to be super efficient and super precise over the last three billion years, right? So we think a lot about like, for instance, plant crossbreeding, and we think that like that's totally normal and safe and really old and natural, right? But that's like only it's like less than a billion years old. Um, it's like, you know, they're babies compared to bacteria and bacteria is so much more precise and efficient. Um, so it's really cool. So that's basically how we did. I just literally ordered the DNA online, mixed it with the bacteria, let the bacteria do the work. And then we get the you know resulting strain out and, you know, we submit it for sequencing to make sure that every base pair is precisely wanted nothing weird happened. And, um, you know, once that checks out again, whole genome sequencing of bacteria takes like a few days and a few hundred dollars now. Um, so we can just see the whole thing. Um, and see that it's exactly like it was before, but with just one extra gene, exactly where we wanted it to be. Um, and so it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's almost too easy these days. So, you know, it's, it's really incredible. Gotcha. Yeah, that does sound like pretty cool. Yeah. I kind of wanted to ask a little bit more about like the homologous recombination. So mm-hmm. I guess from my limited knowledge of this process, like, I know that bacteria are like pretty efficient at doing it and they can obviously do it a lot. And that's what I wanted to ask about. Like, I know that it's pretty common for multiple like recombination events to occur in which like sequences of homology will be like switched back and forth. So I guess like, how did you, how did you make sure that like you're wanted, like you had enough recombination events where your wanted gene landed on your probiotic bacteria as opposed to like staying in the foreign DNA? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, it's a great question. And so like, this is sort of like the practicalities of uh, where bacteria kind of make your life a little easier. And so it's that homologous recombination is a relatively infrequent event. Uh, so when I when I talked about mixing in the just bacteria in the DNA, and then the bacteria take it up, um, that doesn't I mean, that happens, but right, like, you know, in that tube are billions of bacteria, right. And so I need like large numbers, but good, good thing is that bacteria operate in a sort of a large number scale. And so then some small percentage will take up that DNA and recombine it. And then a, a, a percentage of a, 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 some small percentage of those bacteria will actually do the correct integration and, and others will not. Um, and so we have to kind of find the one that did everything right. Um, and so there are different tricks to do that. Um, but basically uh, the way we find the one that did it right is, uh, you know, it, specifically at Zbiotics, is that we start with, it gets a little complicated, but like, um, I'll try and figure out like kind of just a, a high level way to explain it. Like, we're able to take advantage of like, um, this sort of like interesting, like middle, sort of like intermediate phase of, of the DNA crossover, where it actually maintains both uh, its native gene and our uh gene of interest and so that state is called a marrow diploid where it like uh it has two copies of two different alleles in the same spot on the chromosome so imagine it's like a bubble with like two loops kind of going um and and so we select first for that um because we take advantage of a, a antibiotic resistance cassette um on the gene of interest or next to the gene of interest i should say um and so uh, so on that bubble is like this, like, you know, this selector. And so then we select for things that are resistant to the antibiotic, but obviously in the final product, we do not want antibiotic resistance. Cause that's like a humongous ecological and health hazard, which we don't want. So 
what's cool is that then the way we've designed the DNA um, went, so at some point now it's going to have two copies of this gene and we use like uh, temperature as a way of, of maintaining that um, in, in this sort of like special case. Um, and so then when we basically drop the temperature, it won't maintain that marrow diploid anymore and it will resolve. And 50, roughly 50-50, it'll either resolve back to its wild type state and get rid of the of the the uh, heterologous gene um, or uh, the other half the time it'll resolve the other way and we'll get our gene of interest into the chromosome and it'll, it'll loop out its native gene um, but when that resolution happens the antibiotic resistance cassette uh, does not stay it goes with the DNA that was kicked out uh, during that that resolution of the halide junction so like or the meridiploid I should say so um, it is sort of like a little tricky way for us to ensure. And then what we do, so basically, so first we select for ones that are antibiotic resistant, then we drop the temperature, and then we select for ones that have lost antibiotic resistance using replica plating. And so, and so we look at ones that are no longer resistant to our antibiotic. And then of those, basically 50, roughly 50% will be our gene of interest. And the way we figure that out is just by screening them by PCR to find that they have our gene of interest. Um, so like, Half will and half won't, and so we just sort of like pick like, say, ten colonies, and then just screen them by PCR, and just like basically look using PCR to to identify whether or not they have our gene, um, or if they don't. And if they don't, then they went back to wild type, and we get rid of them. And if they do, then we take those ones, and and so okay, well now we're like pretty sure that what we wanted to have happen happened. But to be absolutely sure, we then send it out for whole genome sequencing and make sure that indeed. Not only did it resolve and take up our gene of interest, it didn't do anything else weird um, or you know have any other mutations, and that nothing else weird happened anywhere else in the whole chromosome, not even just where on the part we were editing. Um, and then we get that result back, and we say, okay, um, it everything looks really clean, and so we now know we have exactly what we were going for. And so there's a bit of sort of like narrowing the funnel down um, to find that guy, but um, but it's you know it's always findable. Gotcha, gotcha. So like these multiple screenings definitely like ensure like only that one gene, especially like not the antibiotic resistance or anything like right. land on the probiotic yeah. bacteria. Exactly. And we make and we do several to, because of the antibiotic resistance, like as part of the process, we, we do several extra checks just to be ultra ultra sure and that we can put into all of our like safety dossier materials like um, testing for uh, the make sure that it is indeed still sensitive to that antibiotic and that the set isn't lurking anywhere or anything like that. Gotcha. And I kind of had like one more question about like the homologous recombination process. So basically, I know that there's a lot of bacteria already in the human gut, which is like the destination for your probiotic bacteria. Yeah. Are there, do you guys have concerns that like ZB183, like your probiotic bacteria, mm -hmm. would it, I know it performs homologous recombination infrequently, but is it possible that it could like have like interactions with other um other bacteria in your gut such as like homologous recombination altering the dna of those other bacteria possibly in a good way but just like an unforeseen so, way so you're basically so the question just to make sure i understand your the question is like are, are we worried about our bacteria essentially editing other bacteria in your gut yeah or even the other way around the, just like yeah. do these interactions or, or like other exist bacteria editing us yeah so Without a doubt, I mean, you know, bacteria interact, right? And like I say, this is a natural 
process of DNA exchange that already exists that we're just taking advantage of for genetic engineering. So there is no doubt that some level of recombination, given a large enough you know sample size, will happen, right? Like enough people taking enough bacteria, right? Um, and so then the question becomes, and this is a really important question, and this is something that you know we find very interesting at Zbiotics as is part of our bigger mission around uh, genetically engineered microbe safety, um, is ensuring that, like, because it is, I'll say, I'll say, like, as a, the state of the field currently exists, it is essentially impossible to ensure that that won't happen. Um, so we just, so for all these purposes, we have to assume that it will. And so therefore, whatever does happen in terms of interactions between genetic interactions between our bacteria and, or any engineered bacteria and, and a wild type bacteria in your gut, um, that those interactions won't be deleterious. Um, and so, so that's a hard thing to, 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 you know, to, to define, right? Like, like, because you're basically saying like, how do you say that something that is, that is probably that, that will happen given a larger sample size that is undefined, that we don't know what it's going to exchange, um, that that isn't dangerous in some way. And so here's how we approach that question, um, which is like that we started with a bacteria that you already, that humans have been intentionally ingesting for hundreds of years in high quantities via natto, kombucha, other fermented foods. Um, and so we know that any DNA exchange that could happen with just the wild type, that wild type bacteria has happened. And that like, we're, so we're not changing like sort of like that steady state, right? Like that is a normal thing that already exists. So any exchange that's happening there that would potentially be dangerous, um, like would have arisen by now or would arise anyway. And so we're not really influencing that in any way. And so then really it just comes down to, is the thing we inserted possibly uh, able to be exchanged? And if it were, would that cause a problem? And so this is another, so, so, so then if we just focus on that gene, um, that gene is, as I say, present in, in 70, in some form of some, uh, a homologue of that gene is present in 70% of all life on the planet. Um, so uh, it is already been, our, your gut microbiome is already exposed to that gene all the time. And it exists in many bacteria that already exist in your gut. Um, so any exchange of that does not provide any sort of advantage or, or or really be anything different than your body's already seen. So basically what we're doing is combining two things that we already know exist in the gut and are not dangerous um, and combining them together in a way that um, we have some element of control of the time and the amount of expression um, that, uh, that that gene is being expressed. So that is where we started, right? Like obviously that limits you, right? Like in the applications that you can do because you have to pick things that we already know are safe and exist in the gut. Um, and so the question gets harder as you try and expand outside of that. And that's a lot of what we're working on is like, how do we define those borders and predict the unpredictable essentially, um, or accept that anything could happen. And so how do we make that safe? And so it's a, it's a challenging question, but it's one that we're really excited about. Um, and it is really fundamentally the core mission of Zbiotics to really define gem, uh, genetic venture microbe, we call them gems, uh, gem safety. Um, and, uh, and so this is a big step. So, this first one, like I say, that that was that's how we approached it. That's that's what we use. Um, um, and you know, in addition, I should I should point out that it's not just like that's the logic argument, but obviously we did a lot of scientific testing to ensure that the safety of the product as well. But um, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of how we think about it right now. Gotcha, makes sense. So we've talked a bit about like the process of developing like the bacteria. Um, I kind of wanted to touch a little bit about like the your functionality and like safety tests that like. 
that are on your website. I was wondering, can you give like a quick summary of like some important steps that you had to like fulfill to ensure product safety as well as like product mm-hmm. functionality, you know, it does what you wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we chose to launch our product as a food product, not a drug um, or a supplement. And so it's, these are, you know, these distinctions matter in terms of, of what you are required to show and then also what you ethically should show. Um, and, um, it, you know, and obviously the requirements are requirements and the ethics are sort of the choice of the company. Um, and so, uh, you know, as is true with anything, of course, um, you know, and so what we're required to show as a food product to show that the product is safe uh, for people to consume at non-specified doses, right? Like a supplement or a drug has a specified dose you can take for the food. You can eat as much or as little as that as you want it. So, um, so it's necessary to show that the product is safe even in an unspecified dose. And so you make estimations based on the type of food, what 95% of the population would be reasonably expected to consume as an upper limit. And then you set, and you set limits above that upon which you test the product for safety. And so we start with the genetic argument for safety. We start by saying that the bacteria is safe, the gene we're putting into that bacteria is safe. There's no reasonable expectation that it would be unsafe. Um, and then from there, we say, even though there's no reasonable expectation that it would be unsafe, we'll, we'll prove it. Um, and so we do a, a barrage of in vitro tests uh, that are sort of like commonly accepted by the FDA as, as demonstrations generally of safety around cytotoxicity, uh, uh, hemolytic activity, um, uh, antibiotic resistance, things like that. Um, you know, and uh, there's also some like databases you can search to see if there's any allergen, you know, predicted allergenicity or toxigenicity. And, and we just show that we don't have anything that, you know, looks like, you know, the hallmarks that we typically see for something that could be dangerous. Um, and then a sort of a last proof of concept is we compare uh, the safety of our probiotic uh, relative to water, um, essentially, uh, in, back, in, uh, in rats uh, for 90 days. So we do a repeat dose study um, in rats um, where you get a dose every day for 90 days um, at doses at or higher than, up to a thousand times higher than um, what we plan on putting in our product. So um, that report came back and showed that the animal showed no uh, um, uh, markers of toxicity or, or any ill health, uh, you know, indistinguishable from water, even at a thousand fold higher levels than what a human would you know, what we put in a dose or what a human would reasonably expected to take. Um, and so all those things put together, we assemble into a dossier called a GRASS or generally recognized as safe dossier. And then we have that, uh, we, and we, we publish in a peer reviewed journal, the rodent study and any pivotal data necessary. Um, so then that's peer reviewed um, and made publicly available. And then uh, a, we assembled an independent panel of food toxicologists. So no financial interest in Zubotics whatsoever. Um, we pay, you know, we pay them for their time to review the dossier, um, but they they get their money whether they say the product is safe or unsafe. Uh, and so it, they have no incentive um, other than their own reputation, right? So if they say something is safe and then it later comes out that it isn't, um, then then you know that is that they're they're responsible for that. That looks bad for them. And so um, so they're very incentivized to be honest and uh, and they review all of our data uh, and then they determine whether or not uh, they think the product is safe and they're advised us and then we say and then they say like yes this product is, we think this product is safe there's no reason that station never be unsafe um and then we take that information and we say okay then we choose to launch this product on the on the market as a food product gotcha 
Um, the two, I guess, first I wanted to kind of like touch on functionality, just like showing that the product does does work. Um, I guess the two results that I was particularly interested from your numerous functionality tests were just like first, like the Kumasi stain, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, I think on your website, you kind of say that like the Kumasi stain is just sort of like a PCR for proteins and that like right. you basically, the, the big result that you had was that like you ran two lanes of it and like on one lane was like the parent strain and then on the other side was your engineered ZB183 strain. And then mm-hmm. on on the side of your engineered lane, like there was like a presence of one extra darker band, which like you kind of interpreted to be like, oh, there's like there's a extra protein here that's not present in um in the parent strain, which is what we want, what you want, because that's what you engineered it for. I was wondering how did you then determine that this was like ALDH? Yeah, yeah. So it's a great. That's exactly. It's sort of a stair step up, right? So the Kumasi stain is the first. It's kind of like the first. Well, the first proof of concept, right, is that the DNA is there, right? And then and then we have to figure out that it's actually successfully transcribing and translating that DNA into protein, right? And so the Kumasi stain is just our ability to, like, so we just look at every protein that it makes and we separate them by size. Um, and, um, and then we see that there's, like, an extra band. And it's very dark, which, you know, the darker the band, the more the protein. So we see this very dark band, which means it's making a lot of something that the parent strain wasn't making um and so given the given its size matching up with our expected size of an aldh uh, and the fact that it exists there and not in the parent strain it strongly suggests that uh that that is our aldh enzyme but of course there's several things we don't know um a it is formally possible although unlikely that it's just some random other protein that just happens to be expressed in this strain but um, and so, so we don't know that for certain, right? It's just strongly suggested it's protein. And also, even if we say that we know it is the protein of interest, we don't know that protein is functional. We just know that it's making a lot of it, but it, it could have be misfolded or something like that. And so, so we have to go one step further and test to make sure that we have function. Um, and so the way we do that is we do like a phenotypic assay. And so um, we'll essentially incubate our bacteria or the parent bacteria that's unedited with a bunch of acetaldehyde. Um, and then we can then read out if it's converted that acetaldehyde to acetate. Um, and so we do an assay to, to see if it's able to essentially convert acetaldehyde to acetate. Um, and we see that when we compare the parent strain to our strain, that our strain has, like, you know, uh, where the parent strain has essentially no acetaldehyde dehydrogenase activity, um, the edited strain has very high levels of acetaldehyde dehydrogenase activity. So, Fundamentally, like given that we know we have a protein of the right size, it's only been expressed um, in our parent strain. I mean, in our edited strain, and our edited strain has a phenotypic function. The other one doesn't do. You know, all, and at the end of the day, it doesn't actually really matter, right? <laughs> if the strain can break down acetaldehyde, that's what we want anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's it's it is almost assuredly due to our editing, but um, you know, uh, it is you know it, it has the function, um, and so that's the most important thing. And so then, what we can do is we can set up physiologically relevant conditions in the lab. Um, it's very hard to test uh, the activity in a human, right, without doing a human clinical trial, which is very expensive and, quite frankly, like feasibly impossible, given that you'd have to sort of like take gut contents of acetaldehyde breakdown, and you know that's really hard to do in people, and that's pretty invasive. Um, and so, you know, given the, you know the stakes on this, um, so uh, we can create physiologically relevant conditions in the lab that like look like our gut in terms of the amount of acetaldehyde 
that is that we would expect to be present even after a night of heavy drinking and and the amount of bacteria that would be that people would have in their gut if they've taken antibiotics and um, and see that it's able to break down that acetaldehyde in a physiologically relevant amount of time right so like if it takes four days then that's useless right it has to happen in the, in like a timeline that's the you know equates to about a night or like eight hours um and so 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 that's how we sort of set up those tests to see if like could it break down a relevant amount of acetaldehyde in a relevant amount of time it, given conditions that resemble the gut and the answer to that in vitro testing was yes and um and so that that's sort of like the next step right so it makes a protein that protein is functional and it can break down acetaldehyde in gut-like conditions. And so then the last test is then to say like, okay, even if it does all that, does it matter? Like, does somebody actually perceive that to be beneficial to them? Um, even if it, like, so like, let's just say that it is breaking down all the acetaldehyde in your gut, like, does that make a difference? Um, and so that was sort of like the last test, right? And like, um, and you know, this is a little bit more informal. So of course I tested it on myself and I uh, had like, you know, a very, scientific uh, end of one experiment where I tried uh, the product and then had a protocol for how many drinks I was going to have and then recorded how I felt the next day and then um, and, and was very encouraged by those results and you know and that was kind of like the first test of the prototype uh, but then we moved on and you know we started um, handing out beta you know beta uh, prototypes uh, you know beta samples um, to to people and and asking them to tell us how they felt the next day um, and so it's you know uh, a perception of efficacy, right? Like, um, do they whether or not it does anything for you? Do you feel like it does, right? So even if it is doing something beneficial for you, if you wake up the next day and say, like, I don't think I feel different, then it doesn't matter, right? Because it because even if it is biologically doing something, like what matters to the cut to the to the consumer is that they actually can tell that difference. And so so we asked a lot of people. We handed out ended up handing out like about ten thousand samples um, and, and asked people and got a lot of feedback and we saw huge uh, amount of positive response. Um, you know, uh, roughly 94, 95% of people said they did perceive a benefit from the product. And so that for us was at the end of the day, what mattered, right? We're making a product that people will use and, and judge based on their own experience, um, whether or not it was valuable to them and whether or not they buy it again. So ultimately that's the test that matters. And that, was those results were also very encouraging um, and encouraging enough to say that I think we had a product that provided people with value um, and that, that, that they'd be interested in purchasing. And so uh, from there it was, you know, launching the product and, and hoping we could do right by it on the market. And so far um, that those results have held very consistent that the vast majority of our customers are, are satisfied and, um, and say they buy it again. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds cool. I wanted to follow up on the phenotypic assay that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, that was also the second thing that I was interested in from the functional test. I saw the graph where it was like in vitro testing about where your engineered strain kind of broke down acetaldehyde from like 18 millimolars to like 10 millimolars, whereas your parent strain like basically didn't have any breakdown. And that was like mm -hmm. a pretty important proof that it, it works. I... I think your website kind of suggested that like this breaks down more acetaldehyde than like you would than a regular person would consume in like one drinking session. Mm -hmm. I was kind of curious like do you think that like this could be your product could be an aid for like significant overconsumption of alcohol and like are there possible this might be like a huge stretch but is there like a perhaps like a clinical use for probiotic bacteria for like say people who are like addicted to alcohol? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think both are really cool, uh, are very important questions, I should say. Like, uh, particularly the first one, like, it was something that, you know, we certainly uh, thought a lot about early on in the early days of Z-Biotics. Like, is this something that, you know, the point of, of, of making a genetically engineered probiotic is to make people's lives better. Uh, and so if we're encouraging bad behavior or, uh, or, or encouraging people to make like poor life decisions, like then it's sort of antithetical to what z set out to do. And so we wanted to make sure that that's not what we're doing. And, and so the good news is that like, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, I guess asked this question a lot and there's a lot of ways to sort of explain why that is not the case. Um, I think the most important one though, is that like, it doesn't work that well, right? Like, uh, and, and like I know that sounds weird to say, but it's like we often say, look, this is science, not science fiction. Um, it's not a get out of jail free card. It breaks down acetaldehyde, which causes some of the next day symptoms of drinking. Um, and uh, we, you know, so we can help, but you still have to drink responsibly. Like, you can't, you know, alcohol itself causes, for instance, poor sleep. Um, and at, at a highest level, alcohol is very toxic in its own right without the acetaldehyde, right? And so if you drink too much, you're going to get sick. You're going to like throw up is what happens when people drink too much, right? And um, that is alcohol. And so this still requires you to drink responsibly. Uh, and so this is really just a, another tool for a responsible person to feel better when uh, in addition to the other things they're doing to drink, to drink responsibly and have healthy uh, lifestyle choices. Um, so... So I guess that's like, I, I consider that good news, right? Like that, like, it's not like, you know, and, and also I'll say this, that like, we know in there's sort of a, a scientific answer as well, which is that like, uh, hangovers are not, um, deterrence in the long, in the long term for people drinking. Um, so the, the number one predictor of a hangover of whether or not you will get a hangover in the future is if you've had one in the past. Um, <laughs> which sounds obvious, right? Like, of course, like somebody who drinks enough to get hungover will probably is the kind of person who will get a hangover, right? Like, but that shows that it's also not a deterrent. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hangovers, I think get made out to be kind of like the, like the thin thread that's holding all of humanity back from like, alcoholism. <laughs> but that is like, definitely not the case. It's not how people behave. And so, um, that's sort of, you know, that's a little bit more of a flippant answer. And I get that, like, you know, we can't just like, ah, oh, people will make the right decisions. But like, it truly is, I, you know, the product is just not meant for for that purpose. It, and it doesn't work in that situation um, as well, or, or it, does, it doesn't provide the same benefits as it does to somebody who's drinking responsibly. And so like, all of our messaging is around setting that expectation. You have to drink responsibly and you make the right decisions. And Z-Biotics is really part of that, as opposed to an unhealthy drinking behavior. So from that perspective, it's really, it's not about uh, giving people a get out of jail free card. It's about giving people like another tool in their responsible toolbox. Um, and then uh, there was a there was a, a second question. Oh, about like possibly using this as a way to deal with people with addiction. Um, it's an interesting idea that like I think more to expand that out even further. It's like what is the ultimate potential of genetically engineered probiotics? Um, and and truthfully, I mean not to get too hyperbolic, but I think that the possibilities are, are, are endless. Um, using genetic engineering, we can program any biological function on the planet into a probiotic bacteria. And then you can eat that bacteria and temporarily gain that function as that bacteria passes through. That's a really amazing idea. And so, so essentially, if there's a biological function that can do X, we can give you 
like X. Uh, and so I think that like, if you think about like addiction, if you can think of a biological function that would help with that, um, we could program that into a probiotic and potentially and, and have that effect on you as long as like uh, that function is relevant in the gut, um, for instance. But there's other places where probiotics live in your body, of course, as well. So um, anywhere where we can have bacterial access is an opportunity. And so I do think that like this can be applied to all sorts of things. And indeed, there are companies out there developing drugs um, using the same strategy of genetic engineered probiotics. Um, we chose to go with you know, really, I really like the idea of being able to engage directly with the consumer. Um, GMOs have gotten a bad name and, you know, and I don't think it's all been for bad reason. You know, I think there's been a lot of trust issues and a lot of like devious, uh, sort of like, um, corporate behavior or whatever that has led to the, like, you know, people not trusting it. And so we see Zbiotics as an opportunity to elevate the narrative, uh, above like, is it or isn't it a GMO? Um, you know, is a GMO good or bad into something more rational around like, here's the technology, here are like the acknowledged risks, which we've talked about uh, to, some, to some extent today. Um, and, you know, and here are the benefits. And like, we present this information freely and transparently and openly to you and give you the opportunity to evaluate those things um, and, and make your own decisions. And so really taking that, that conversation to a much more rational level where people can evaluate the risks like they do with any new technology. Um, and so I think that, that for me, that's much more important, right? Um, well, I should say it's more important to me. Um, uh, it's not more important in an absolute sense. I mean, like, obviously, disease prevention is incredibly important. Um, it's just that, I, like, I'm excited about having that conversation. And you know, nobody questions a GMO when they have diabetes and they need insulin, which is made with GMOs, a genetically engineered uh, E. coli, um, right? But they do when they're walking through the grocery store and they're making sort of like food, like optional decisions. And so. So I'd like to have the opportunity to have an effect on that conversation a little bit more. Um, and I think there's a lot of really great that we can do with that. And so that's why we are where we are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I definitely think, um, at least from what I've learned about your company, like it definitely seems like you guys are like trying really hard to like um, make a dent in like that uh, GMO like stigma, I would, I would say. I think one thing that I found like particularly interesting and like was the reason I'm, I'm able to ask all these like higher level questions is that like you guys are super clear about like your science and like your safety, which makes it like easy for like anyone to just like kind of like read it, understand and like even then ask, ask questions. So I guess the last science thing I kind of want to touch on based on that was like um, just your safety study with the, your in vitro rat study. Um, I think from what I understood was that that's kind of, that was one of the last steps that you needed to take to prove safety and that mm -hmm. you basically just had to prove that there weren't really dose dependent adverse reactions mostly. And if there, there were any, like you would have to like look at other factors to explain whether that was like a statistical anomaly or whether it was something to be concerned about. And from my understanding, like there wasn't really any, there weren't many um, in the in the super long battery of tests you ran, like there weren't really any dose-dependent adverse reactions from the re results. So my question was kind of like, if you guys did see like dose-dependent adverse reactions, you know, like with increasing dose, like there was negative <laughs> effects in the mice, how would your company have dealt with it? And like how far back, like would you have had gone in development? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a totally fair question. And it's like one of those things where, you know, in part, we wouldn't have embarked on the rodent study if we thought that that was a reasonable possibility, uh, because you know it's it is a big 
you know, especially for a small startup, that is a big financial investment um, in a long period of time. And so if it were to come back, um, you know, like you say, showing a dose dependent uh, issue um, that was concerning or troubling, I mean, we would have no choice, right, but to start over uh, because like it would be unsafe. And the last thing, it's not worth launching something that like just even take the ethics off the table. I mean, like, uh, you know, obviously ethically we never would, but like, even if we, you, know, you don't trust us, you don't think we're ethical at all, just take the business case, right? Like if you launch something that makes people sick or causes a problem, you're, it's a very short-sighted strategy, right? Like people will get upset, uh, and, you know, and you'll cause damage and you won't just, it's not just bad business, you'll blow up your all future opportunities. So you have, you, you have no choice, I think, in my opinion. Uh, but to do the right thing. Obviously, there are many, many examples of people choosing to do the wrong thing. And so I, maybe it's a little naive of me to say, but like we, you know, so I think if we had seen a dose dependent uh, issue that was like concerning or that we thought would have been a health risk in any way, um, we would have had to, I mean, at that point, it's tough to say what we would have done. Um, I think that if, you know, probably first step would be to see if there's some way we could rescue the product we currently had. Um, and so that would look and see what the dose dependent effect was, like what part of the, you know, body, uh, was the problem created in, and then maybe try to isolate why that happened. And then if it was something that we could maybe change, um, that, that so to, to minimize or mitigate that effect, um, then we would, you know, try that and then try again. But even then we'd be like, you know, now we're really upping our risk. We have to do another rodent study and like, we already know the problem, the product has some damage. So, so you know, we may have decided at that point to gone with a totally different, um, a different product at that, you know, a uh, different, you know, strategy altogether. Like, I don't think we would have probably changed the probiotic. We start, I don't think, I think we still probably use subtleness because we know it's a very safe bacteria, the, you know, very long issue of safe use. So we'd have to assume that our edit was what created the problem. And so we probably would design it with something else. Um, and then I would guess that the other thing I would do would be in the next rodent study, I would also run it expressing a protein that that has already been shown in rodents to be safe um, as a positive control for safety. Um, and so if that showed a problem as well, then we would know that there was something wrong with, there was something we were, there would be an artifact that we were missing, that it wasn't as simple as the bug and the protein. Um, and, and then we'd have to, you know, think through what that might be. So I think that would be how I'd have approached that problem. But thank goodness we did not go back because I would have, that, honestly, truthfully, I mean, at the stage of the company we were at, it we would have died. Uh, I don't think we would have been able to raise more money at that point, um, and we would have been out of money. So, um, so it's, it's it's grateful that that didn't happen. But I think that's what scientifically what I would have done. Gotcha, makes sense. And on your website, you also kind of like mention that your in vivo rat study. I think if if I'm not mistaken, you felt that like your test of in vitro and like a lot as, as well as like a lot of in silico <laughs> tests like provided compelling evidence for product safety and then right. so i guess my kind of interpretation of that was like do you think that this is a direction that food product developers are headed in in which in vivo testing in rats is like like just not as necessary uh, if you already have like in silico and like in vitro like test results and i asked this because i know that like computational modeling and like in vitro work like they're only projected to become like more comprehensive and more accurate. Right. So is this like perhaps the reasoning behind that? I truly hope 
that we can get there. I think it is a phenomenal waste of animal life and it's unethical um, to do these tests uh, like at a fundamental level. Um, that being said, it is our best it is our best tool right now um, and there's no way around it essentially like you know you just you can't you can't do you can't bring a product to market um, without it. Um, I hope that we can move away from animal testing. I hate that we have to do it. Um, and we try and do as minimal as possible. We don't do dose ranging tests ahead of time uh, to limit the number of animal tests we do because they're not strictly required. They're like safety tests, like uh, safety in the sense of like, um, uh, like they're smaller tests so that if they fail, you don't do the big tests. Like it's safety in terms of your checkbook, not safety in terms of like the privacy. And so we would rather risk our checkbook than like more animal testing. And, um, and so we really try and do the minimum, absolute minimum possible to, to you know, uh, avoid the uh, unnecessary like waste of, of animal life um, and I really hope that computational uh, models and in vitro and in silico testing and even um, new in uh, like creative like you know like think about uh, this is sort of like a far-fetched idea it's not around the horizon or anything, but like you know with like lab-grown meat like at some point maybe we could like grow a representative like biological system like um that wasn't alive but like was biologically active that we could you know do do representative testing on uh you know I, I would love for that to be the case and i hope and i know that we're progressing that way unfortunately i think it's still a long way off i just think that like regulatory agencies and basically you know comfort like um uh people's sort of like emotional comfort with the idea of like, trusting a computer um as opposed to you know uh, a living system is just a long way off. Um, and so hopefully a lot of work will be done to demonstrate that they're functionally um, identical or that it's a relevant models, uh, that those are relevant models and things and, and that we can minimize animal testing in the future. Um, and I really, I really, you know, it's one of the things that I, I, I hate about um, this industry that is just sort of like, you know, unfortunately unavoidable right now. Gotcha. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I guess the last sciences-ish question is that, like, are you guys designing for, like, where's the future of Z-Biotics kind of headed? Are you designing for new functions, like, like say, breakdown of lactic acid, or are you continuing your, like, acetaldehyde breakdown research? Are we, are you guys still messing around with the same bacteria strains, or are you scaling up your current product? Yeah, uh, kind of like all those things, I guess, um. We're definitely building new products. Uh, and we're really excited about that. Like I said earlier, you know, we can program any biological function on the planet into a bacteria. Uh, and so that is just like such an exciting thing that we can't help but pursue, right? And so we're never set this company up to be, you know, a drinking company, uh, a <laughs> company or a vice company. That's never was a point. It was always about like showing what we can do with genetically engineered microbes and the potential of this really cool platform technology um you know we're the world's first ever genetically engineered probiotic of any kind um but we won't be the last i can guarantee that and so we'll be making more products that do all kinds of things related you know totally unrelated to our first product um and we already have a second prototype um that's built and we're looking to commercialize in the next year um and we have you know three four and five uh, in the works in our pipeline um we're also in conversation with like other companies that are also uh, doing genetically engineered, you know, probiotics or genetically engineered bacteria for different functions, both clinical and, you know, uh, uh, consumer 
facing. And um, you know, we're really encouraged by that. And and we don't see these people as competitors. We see them as like collaborators and like you know as building a, a, a new industry. Uh, we're really excited about that. Um, so definitely see a lot more on the horizon, and we're really really committed to to really showing the value of this and how important it can be. Gotcha. Gotcha. And lastly, uh, if you still have time, uh, I'd love to ask a couple of business questions, if that's okay, about like starting yeah, out totally. with biotech. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I guess originally I found your company just by looking through the Y Combinator, like alumni directory. So I wanted to kind of ask like, what was, Y Combinator is obviously like one of the world's most well-known startup accelerators. And what was the process of like applying to YC like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was like, it's kind of a, a crazy experience. Like the, it, it is like this, like kind of like big deal and like, you know, it's intimidating, like Y Combinator. And so we applied and we're like, you know, we put together our application and, you know, Y Combinator is traditionally thought of like, you know, it definitely has its roots in it. It's most famous companies are like a lot of software or sort of like, um, marketplace type companies and things like, obviously they do many more things than that, but that's kind of what they're known for. And. So we sort of felt like maybe we were going to be like a weird kind of applicant or whatever. And I think in a lot of ways we were, but, um, you know, as a biotech company, but there are other biotechs um, for sure. And, and so, but we applied and we put together an application and, um, uh, and I had actually previously done a YC, this YC fellowship program, which was like a, a thing they tried like early on, just a couple of batches. It was like small scale for just like zero to one kind of stage companies. Um, and I, so I had already had some interaction with the YC community, which I think was really helpful. Um, I was able to kind of get a, uh, a recommendation, uh, from another, from a person in YC, like for our startup application. So that at least got us, I think a look, um, but you know, there are lots of people getting looks. And so it is a lot of, I mean, YC has so many really great applicants and like great companies, like. I, you know, people reach out to me, friends or something like that, or, or people who just find us and, and reach out and ask for advice and I'll see them like with these amazing companies and I'll be like, oh, they're definitely going to get in. And, uh, and then they don't, and it's not because they weren't good companies because there's so many great companies and great startup ideas. And so there's a bit of, you know, of, of a crap suit to that. Um, uh, but you know, you put together a good application and you really got to try and catch somebody's eye and, you know, with an interesting idea that seems feasible and, and unique and all those sorts of things. And then. Um, you know, and you have some kind of traction or something like that. And, um, and then you go in for an interview. Um, and the interview is very nerve wracking because it's only 10 minutes. Uh, and the application is not that long either. So you really have to make an impression on people uh, with a short period of time. And, um, and so in that 10 minutes, you kind of have to, you know, you don't, they, they start asking you questions and you don't necessarily even get to say the things you really want to say, uh, or you have to figure out ways to work them in um, because who knows what questions are going to ask you. And so you just kind of have to do your best um, and show that you're coachable and that you know, that you're not too stubborn, but that you believe in yourself and like, you know, all of these things. And so it's like kind of walking this fine line and, and then who knows what happens behind the closed doors, but then you get in and it's like, oh my God. And, um, and so I know we walked out of our interview thinking there was no chance we got in, uh, that it felt like it went terrible. Um, uh, but then we did. And so we did the program and I just can't speak highly enough of like how amazingly helpful and fun and informative it was and how great the community is. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it continues to be, we still use it as a resource. So, so yeah, YC was definitely the only reason that we exist and we're, you know, we just loved being able to be part of that. Gotcha. Were there any like resources that YC gave you that you wouldn't have been able to like 
get otherwise and like were like key factors in helping you succeed totally i mean like everything i mean they help you incorporate and like structure your company and you get it you know you get basically like the experience and wisdom of thousands and thousands of previous startups right like uh and best practices uh just the basics things that like i never would have known i was a scientist i didn't know how to start a company um and, and you just learn all that stuff like you know, kind of like day one and then you have this whole community of other startups in your batch and in your small group that you you know we're still friends with some of the you know companies that we went to the program with you know i don't know like however many years later three years later um and uh the fundraising i mean demo day is just like i mean it's unprecedented like you know when are the, when else would you be able to get a thousand investors that are really eager to invest in you like sitting in like in an auditorium where you get a pitch to them uh, all one go it's it's incredible so there's that and then the ongoing community so there's a you know internal forum um where you can post you know you can ask for anything um and somebody has gone through that problem or has used a vendor that solved that or whatever and they'll connect you and so i mean it's just like it's such an amazing resource. Gotcha. And like when you're pitch, like when you're pitching to investors, and also when you're applying to YC, like what stages of like product development were you in? Like, did you already have like a functional kind of like probiotic bacteria that you had already started like running safety tests on, or were you earlier? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for the first raise like the for like just the tiny little like pre-seed starter money i needed to get the biology going i just i just you know was pitching an idea i was like hey i'm a phd microbiologist i this is a feasible technology and this is what i plan to do with it and i think i can build it um and you know and just sort of painted a picture and i wasn't asking for a lot of money and so you know i was lucky that a few small investors were learning to write some small checks to get just the technology moving. Um, and then uh, from there, I made a little traction with the science. And so I was able to show like, you know, I de-risked that a little bit. Like, yes, like, I'm not just saying I could do what I really could. Like, here's, you know, my results. Although in truth, even at that point, no investor really cared about the science because I was not far <laughs> enough along yeah. for a science investor to care. There was no like, I didn't have any nature papers or anything, you know, and, um, and, and non-science investors don't understand the science. And so you're really still selling the vision even though you're making progress in the lab. And then by the time I applied to YC, we had a prototype in hand. And I think one of the really impactful things we did in our interview and also what we did in our fundraising was we walked into the room with samples and we said like, here, like try them. And like, if you like it, you can invest in us, you know? It's like, and, um, and I think that level of confidence in the product was, was one of the things that differentiated. I mean, you know, we also had a lot of other selling that we had to do. Uh, but, you know, being able to show and stand behind a, a prototype, I think, is a really, it's a great option if you have it. Like, it's not always the case with everything, but, um, you know, so so that was that was something that we had in terms of traction. But we weren't on the market and we weren't going to be. We're raising money to manufacture the product and get through the regulatory requirements and all those things. And so we're like, look, you know, we had to walk in and say, we're still a year or two away from launching this product. Like, but here it is and we think we can do it. And like, here's what we think we'll do once we do launch. So help us get there. Gotcha. And uh, you're obviously a scientist by training, and you're also the CEO of a company. Um, I wanted to ask, like, would you say that business knowledge is, like, needed to form a startup, like, even a, a science startup? And, like, as a scientist, like, did you have, like, business knowledge, like, coming coming into this? And, like, what was it like trying to navigate those logistics? Yeah, I certainly wasn't trained uh, in business. Like, I didn't have any, but, uh, you know, 
I'd done a lot of thinking and dealing with, by the time I started Zbiotics, I dealt with a lot of companies that did have, a, that were science-based and just sort of seeing the different paths to market and thinking about what my opportunities would be for commercializing my science. And I think one of the early, I think one of the things that I had instincts towards that isn't that anybody can learn and develop, but that like I, you know, I, I just had um, for whatever reason, I'm sure there's a reason, but like I can't think of it off the top of my head. It was like, I understood the difference between cool science and commercializable science. And I think that's a really important distinction that you have to have. Like there's a lot of cool things we discover in the lab but they don't make good products or companies. Um, and, and I think that like one of the kind of common pitfalls for scientists is to believe that if something is really interesting or really cool or seems like it should be useful, then it's worth starting a company over or worth trying to sell, when in reality it maybe isn't. Um, and so I really tried to focus on on commercializable science and like thinking through like from the get-go, like when I was doing the initial designs, like I said, when I picked my, when we talked earlier about what strain of bacteria I chose to start with, it was, all about practicalities of commercializing it, right? Like what would be shelf stable? What would be like able to pass through your gut unharmed without encapsulation? Those are like logistical problems, right? Um, not scientific ones. And so like just thinking through it like that. And I think that that having like approaching it that way set us up uh, so that when the, the real business stuff happened that I definitely did not know anything about, um, we at least had a product that was commercializable. And then, you know, my co-founder had you know, had a little bit more background in sort of like um, in, in the business. Um, and so he was able to kind of take what a commercializable thing and, and, and help me turn that into a company and a business. Um, and then we also got a lot of outside help as well. So I guess to more directly answer your question, like, do you need to have business savvy or business training to start a startup if you're a scientist? And the answer is no, but you do have to recognize that you don't, um, and you do have to recognize like what science is commercializable, and then get help where you need it. Um, but you always, nobody can build a company by themselves. Everybody needs help. Uh, everybody has, you know, vendors and uh, consultants and co-founders and employees and all the things you need. And so you need to recognize that you're not going to be able to do everything and know your limitations and don't stand in your own way, basically. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I also wanted to kind of like touch on specifically what it's like to found a biotech company as opposed to like other types of company like software companies. Were there any like unique benefits or challenges that biotech startups face in comparison to other startups? I guess one one really big challenge that I first thought of was like, hey, like, wouldn't it be a lot harder to start a biotech startup because like you're dealing with people's like health as opposed to like a software company that's just like making a website? In some ways, uh, I think, yeah, it cuts both ways, right? Like, yeah, it's harder, which means less people are doing it, which means, you know, you have a lot more defensibility uh, and a lot more sort of uniqueness. Um, anybody can start. Well, I, I don't mean that to trivialize how difficult it is to start a, to a software company, but the point is, like, anybody can build the things that it would require to start a startup, uh, a software startup. It, it takes an immense amount of ability then to overcome the, the hurdles of, dealing with like the immense pool of people who are building software startups, right? Like um, if you build an app um, or a website or, you know, a, a software service, um, you know, like the coding can be done by many people. So then how do you kind of differentiate and, and find your way? Whereas with the biotech, it's like you're building hard tech. And so like, it's not to say that like, I'm the only person in the world who could build what I built. Other people can too. It's just that like, you have to have more training and more equipment currently someday I don't think that'll be the case. I think someday, like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, building a software startup was a lot harder than it is today. And I think that 20 years from now, building a biotech startup will be a lot more plug and play. 
Um, but right now, we're kind of in a sweet spot where you still need the training, you still need to be a scientist um, uh, to, to at least some extent. There's a lot you can already outsource. So I don't want to overstate like the specialness or like the necessity of like a PhD or anything like that. Like I think there's a lot you can do without that. Um, but like you're building something fundamentally that didn't exist before um, in the natural world. And so that's a very defensible thing. Um, it's very you know unique and differentiating and defining. And so I do think that like that's the advantage of about this startup. Now, the flip side of that coin is that you have to be able to build that, right? And you have there's a lot of upfront money that goes in to the research and development and the manufacturing and the regulatory and all those things. And so you have it's a different path to market. You can't just launch something. You have there's a lot of work that goes into it. And so you have to be able to raise you have to be able to really paint a good picture, right? To an investor to to put money on you when you're saying like, look, we're not even gonna have something in the market for like two or three years in a best case scenario. Um, so I think that like that, those are kind of the give and takes. Um, uh, but I also think that one of the most amazing things that we have right now is just so much white space in biotech, right? There's so much potential um, and capability and so few things that are, because it's new, it's so few things that have been built. Like the fact that I could build the world's first ever genetically engineered probiotic like it's crazy that, that even that opportunity even existed that somebody hadn't like that that opportunity hadn't been taken already um and and there are so many industries where there's no way you could grab low-hanging fruit like that and so I, I think those are the advantages that exist in the biotech space that just make it so fun um to be in gotcha makes sense um and my very last question was just like do you have any advice for like biotech startup founders out there who are like looking to do something similar that Zbiotics did? Um, I mean, I think the the biggest piece of advice I have, I think there's like the two things. Uh, one, it's one thing I already said, but I'll just like reiterate is like you know make sure that you are d drawing a distinction between cool science and commercializable science. Like right, if you're you know there's a lot of like undeniably like uh, cool things that you can do with science, but they don't all necessarily make a good company or good business. And so really thinking through, like don't think like, oh, I'll figure it out later, it's cool, I'll build it, and you know we'll figure out a way to sell it later. Like really, like it's much easier to, before you build it, decide what you want to end on and why that thing is specifically important, and then go out and build that um, and design it in a way that is sellable. So like, you know, for instance, with a bro probiotic, that an engineered probiotic, like no antibiotic resistance cassettes, no mobile genetic elements, like um, you know chromosomal markerless mutations, like in you know an already safe bacteria that is not related to a pathogenic one, right? Like all those design elements were decided ahead of time, um, and I think that like that's really important. And so that's that's I, I say one thing is like know where you're headed before you start the science. Um, and then the second thing is get really good at communicating your science to other people um as scientists we often only talk to other scientists and so and we get trained on how to communicate our science to other scientists we write papers we present like posters and and uh, talks at conferences and things and it's not that's not the real world like you can talk to really really smart people genius level people who don't know anything about your science and you don't seem really smart because you're talking with a bunch of science jargon to them that they don't understand you seem like you just don't know how to explain something um, and so and I think scientists sometimes think that like they need to sound really smart and they use a lot of big words to like prove that they're that they know a lot about science. But like the truth is that like it's 
the most effective scientists are people who communicate their science to anybody. Um, and so that, and that's necessary, right? When you're in an investor meeting with somebody who only has 20 minutes and they don't have time to dig in and they're not scientists, but they want to know why what you're building matters. And so you have to be able to pre present that in a way that is understandable. And so practicing that is something that takes a lot of work. It is amazing for me to understand what was jargon and what wasn't. When I started Zbiotics, I was blown away like, the word enzyme is jargon. Um, like most, many, I shouldn't say most, I don't know if it's most or not, but like many people don't know really what an enzyme is, even if they've heard the word. Probiotic is actually a word that like, many people who take probiotics don't know their live bacteria. And so like we make these assumptions as scientists that people know things that we take as second nature, but they're really things that we've been trained to know and that other people don't know. So like getting good at explaining those things. And I think that's what makes people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and Stephen Hawking such amazing scientists. And in addition to being like, mega super geniuses like they also are able to effectively communicate these incredibly concept concepts to everybody and have everybody appreciate them and so i think that that is like one of the greatest skills you can do as a scientist is be good at pitching your science like practice telling your parents um or you know your friends or whatever people who are not scientists about your science in a way that gets them excited about what you're doing and not bored uh, you know if you see people's eyes pass over and talk about your science you're doing it wrong you know and so i think that those are like the two big pieces of advice i would have Gotcha. No, I totally agree. Well, yeah, that's all the questions that I came prepared with today. So, Zach, thank you so much for your time today. I'm certain that everyone listening to this episode is going to walk with walk away with something new and interesting like me. Um, definitely go check out Zbiotics to anyone who's listening. And, uh, Zach, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much, man. It was really fun, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so, uh, you know. Uh, happy to answer any questions anybody else has. Uh, feel free to shoot me emails and uh, you know through our website zbiotics.com. Um, pretty much all the emails on that website can go directly to me in my inbox. So uh, happy to answer anything anybody has. And uh, and yeah, so it's it really really fun chatting with you, Aaron.